What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. This is SiriusXM Progress. Happy Indictment Friday to all who celebrate. I'm John Fugelsang. For the next three hours or so, we're going to be coming to you live and interactive here on Channel 127 at 866-997-4748. We'd love to hear from y'all all night long because I don't know. I'm, I'm going to venture a possibility. Some of you have thoughts. 866-997-4748. You're listening to Bruce Springsteen covering the greatest Commodore song, the only Commodore song to win a Grammy Award, and they did it after they lost Lionel Richie and were written off as an R&B combo in the 80s. Chris Hauselt's our executive producer running this monster. Thea Harper is running this beast out of Brooklyn. I come to you from Manhattan again for the next three hours. We're going to be coming at you with as many facts as we can about this. And maybe just maybe something else happened today. I'm not sure. We're going to also talk to CNN's award winning journalist, John Blake, about his new memoir, More Than I Imagined, What a Black Man Discovered About the White Mother he never knew, which is an amazing story about growing up in a foster care system and discovering your roots are not at all what you imagined. Also, Richard Pryor fans were in for a real treat. Three of his albums, uh, Live at the Comedy Store 73, um, is on on uh, vinyl. And then two his first two records, Richard Pryor and Craps After Hours, have been newly remastered on vinyl with bonus material. I know, right? 50 years after he records an album, it comes out for the first time on vinyl. But that's what Stand Up Records is doing. They're releasing it. And later on in the show, we're going to be talking with Stand Up Records all about why this release is so special. And of course, all night long, your calls, 866-997-4748. Now we're number three. We're going to try to make sense of this week. We just put to bed with three terrific New York comics, Jim Mandrinos, Joey Novick, and Carol Montgomery of Showtime's Funny Women of a Certain Age. I think we're all set. I think we're ready to get through this. Um, our skies are no longer orange anymore for much of the week. I, I'll admit, I really, really thought God was punishing us for producing Donald Trump. And there was a brief period where I thought maybe the gates of hell opened up really wide for, I don't know, Pat Robertson, and they're just kind of staying the sky. We, we, we seem to be okay. Let's do a show. 515 days until the 2024 presidential election, 261 days until Trump's New York 
trial begins. 241 days until the Republican Super Tuesday. 199 days till Christmas. 51 days until the month we learned if Trump's going to be indicted again in Georgia. 21 days until Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny opens. And four days until Donald Trump is arraigned in a Florida courtroom. Let the countdowns begin. Former President Trump kept highly classified documents all over his retirement villa of Mar-a-Lago. He kept this stuff in the shower. He kept it in the bathroom. Have you seen the photos of the boxes stacked up next to the toilet? I owe the man an apology. All this time I've been saying he used the Constitution as toilet paper. There's photos of him using top secret documents just in boxes on stage at his Palm Beach Club in the ballroom. Just a few of the details in this 49-page indictment unsealed by the DOJ this afternoon. It's, it's, it's huge. And we've been saying for a long time, Merrick Garland plays a slow game. They are not going to be the first Department of Justice to ever prosecute a former president unless they have an airtight case with many, many charges to file. Boy, howdy. These charges are voluminous. This is not like what happened with Alvin Bragg. This is very, very vivid details. He's charged with 37 felony counts. 37 people, one for each chin. 37 felony counts related to the classified documents. This has nothing to do with the Stormy Daniels case he's on trial for. Nothing to do with the Georgia election manipulation case he'll be tried for later this year. Nothing to do with the January 6th charges that will most likely eventually be brought. They unsealed these charges today against him, accusing him of inappropriately keeping and distributing sensitive U.S. government, as we all know. A couple points to keep in mind. Um, Joe Biden did not indict him. Okay, if you're going to be on social media, please, I beg you, if you're going to be around anybody who's Republican in the next few days, please remember a few things for your sanity. Joe Biden didn't do this. Joe Biden found out on the news he did not indict Trump, man. Also, Merrick Garland, Merrick Garland did not indict Donald Trump. Jack Smith, Jack Smith did not indict Donald Trump. You know who indicted Donald Trump? A grand jury of citizens of the state of Florida. That's who heard the evidence. That's who indicted Donald Trump to the tune of 37 felony counts, including 31 counts. For the willful retention, allegedly, of national defense documents, 31 counts of willful retention, maximum imprisonment term of 10 years and a $100,000 fine, uh, also counts of conspiracy to corrupt justice, withholding a document or record, corruptly concealing a document or record, that one doesn't seem like him, uh, concealing a document in a federal investigation, scheme to conceal... I love that scheme. That's that's my Tinder name now scheme to conceal uh, and false statements and representation. Now, none, none of these counts have a mandatory minimum sentence, but they all have maximum sentences of five to 10 years, maximum fines of a quarter million dollars per count. And a quarter million dollars is a lot of rubles. This was a deliberate and concerted effort to remove top secret government documents that we the people own and to keep them. This was a deliberate and concerted effort to show these documents to whoever the hell he felt like at his pleasure while saying on tape he wasn't supposed to have them and saying out loud that he knew on tape he wasn't supposed to show them (laughs) in the bathroom, in the shower. Documents about nukes, military campaigns, marked top secret and confidential in the shower. It it sort of works like this. Are you ready? My, my, My 11 year old sort of explained this to me. OMG, National Archives tells the Trump lawyer, brah, 
And Trump's lawyer tells Trump, brah. So Trump just tells his aide, brah. And the aide moves the boxes. And then Trump's lawyer finds out and tells Jack Smith, brah. So Jack Smith says back, brah. So the Trump lawyer goes under oath and tells the grand jury, brah. And the grand jury goes, brah. That is the 11-year-old version of what just happened. Here is Jack Smith, special prosecutor, in his entire address he gave today, his full statement to the press on the DOJ indictment of Donald Trump. It's very brief. Good afternoon. Today, an indictment was unsealed, charging Donald J. Trump with felony violations of our national security laws, as well as participating in a conspiracy to obstruct justice. This indictment was voted by a grand jury of citizens in the Southern District of Florida. And I invite everyone to read it in full, to understand the scope and the gravity of the crimes charged. The men and women of the United States intelligence community and our armed forces dedicate their lives to protecting our nation and its people. Our laws that protect national defense information are critical to the safety and security of the United States, and they must be enforced. Violations of those laws put our country at risk. Adherence to the rule of law is a bedrock principle of the Department of Justice, and our nation's commitment to the rule of law sets an example for the world. We have one set of laws in this country, and they apply to everyone. Applying those laws, collecting facts, that's what determines the outcome of an investigation. Nothing more and nothing less. The prosecutors in my office are among the most talented and experienced in the Department of Justice. They have investigated this case hewing to the highest ethical standards, and they will continue to do so as this case proceeds. It's very important for me to note that the defendants in this case must be presumed innocent until proven guilty Absolutely. beyond a reasonable doubt in a court in. of law. Yes, sir. To that end, my office will seek a speedy trial in this matter, mm. consistent with the public interest and the rights of the accused. We very much look forward to presenting our case to a jury of citizens in the Southern District of Florida. In conclusion, I would like to thank the dedicated public servants of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, with whom my office is conducting this investigation, and who work tirelessly every day upholding the rule of law in our country. I'm deeply proud to stand shoulder to shoulder with them. Thank you very much. I know the question is, but is this going to keep Donald Trump from losing a third presidential popular vote? He faces up to 20 years in jail. And Walt Nauda, the aide, his, his body man, he's named as a co-conspirator. He's the flunky who was sent to pick up the boxes and move them behind the FBI's back and behind his own lawyer's back. Both men face one count of conspiracy to obstruct justice. The indictment says the purpose of the conspiracy was for Trump to keep classified documents he had taken with him from the White House and to hide and conceal them from a federal grand jury. After his presidency, Trump was not authorized to possess or retain classified announcements. Um, won't surprise you, Donald Trump uh, claims his full innocence. He made a post on his filth social network um, criticizing 
Prosecutor Smith as a Trump hater and said, I had nothing to hide, nor do I now. A3, Donald Trump, like the classic Billy Joel album of 1984, is an innocent man. Just like the Russia, Russia, Russia hoax and all of the others, this has been going on for seven years, they can't stop because it's election interference at the highest level. There's never been anything like what's happened. I'm an innocent man. I'm an innocent person. Uh, They had the Mueller hoax, the Mueller report, and that came out. No collusion after two and a half years. That was set up by Hillary Clinton and Democrats. But this is what they do. This is what they do so well. If they would devote their energies to honesty and integrity, it'd be a lot better for our country. They could do a lot better. They could do a lot of great things. Yeah, you get the idea. I mean, I could take some time right now to refute all the bullshit and double talk and jive you just heard in that 30 second clip. But it's your progress listeners. You get it. You're smart enough. Trump jettisoned his lawyers, James Trusty and co-counsel John Rowley today. That's a good sign, right? That, that's that's always a good sign. He replaced them with Todd Blanche former federal prosecutor already representing Trump on the Alvin Bragg case and a firm to be named later. That's always a good sign. Um, This whole indictment starts with this revelation that Trump showed classified information to people not entitled to view it. And he was not entitled to possess it or show it. He stole classified nuclear secrets. Tell your right-wing uncle that. He shared classified military secrets with multiple unqualified people, including somebody from his fundraising pack. And again, he's caught on tape admitting he had not declassified this stuff before leaving office. 37 counts of wrongdoing. He's also accused of blocking the investigators, lying to them as they tried to get them. And they got him, man. They got him. They have the receipts. They have the timeline. They have him on tape. Uh, The White House said Joe Biden learned about this again through news reports. Here's Deputy White House Press Secretary Olivia Dalton telling reporters on Air Force One that no, the president nor his staff had no advanced knowledge of the charges. I will tell you, though, that and confirm, as we've said uh, overnight, that the president, senior staff, found out just like everybody else last night, no advance knowledge that this was coming, found out from uh, news reports just like everybody else across America. Now, Trump was personally involved in packing the classified info into boxes, and that's the weirdest part about this that I look forward to learning more of. He was really, really on top of this and uncommonly micromanaging the boxes. The indictment says that he showed classified documents to others two different times in 2021, including at Bedminster, New Jersey, which hasn't been searched. He's got a coffin buried there on the golf course. But that's where he shared the details of a secret military plan with uh, like a writer and a publisher. He said on the tape, as president, I could have declassified it. Now I can't, you know, it's still a secret. I mean, it's crazy. Hundreds of classified documents included information regarding defense and weapons capabilities of both the United States and foreign countries, United States nuclear programs, potential vulnerabilities of the United States and its allies to military attack, and plans for a possible retaliation in response to a foreign attack. He takes this stuff, and the Saudis give his son-in-law $2 billion. Holy crap. The, The indictment literally says he was hoarding nuclear secrets that could put at risk the national security of the U.S., Guys, 38 counts, 31 willful retention. Some unnamed family member is involved in the cover-up. Counts 1 through 31, willful retention of national defense, conspiracy to obstruct justice, withholding records, two counts of corruptly concealing documents, scheme to conceal, two counts of false statements. So here's the facts. Trump 
allegedly knew he had classified material. Trump allegedly shared classified documents he knew he wasn't allowed to share. Trump and his flunkies allegedly tried to cover this up, the handling of the sensitive documents. Trump allegedly kept a massive trove of classified material he wasn't supposed to have and knew it. Trump allegedly stored these documents in weird and insecure locations. And on Fox News, Trump's blood slave Stephen Miller put his fealty to Donald Trump on display, calling the indictment the end of the American Republic. I give you Renfield, A4. Let me first say on a personal note, as someone that was there with President Trump in 2016, flying all around the country, going state to state, to serve mm. in the White House every single day for all four years of the administration, this is a sad day for me personally, as someone who has so much affection and so much admiration for President Trump, who has seen him up close and personal and what a heart he has for this country. <laughs> Let me also say that I believe history will record today is the day that we cease to be a democratic republic and we became a people ruled by an unelected government bureaucracy. You have the Department of Justice deciding who can be president and who cannot be president. It is not a no, coincidence, not as you talked that. about, no. that this comes out, this indictment comes out on the same day that we have credible evidence of a bribery scheme that goes all the way up to no, Joe Biden. No, it's not don't. a coincidence that this comes on the okay, heels I, you, you of get the idea, right? report you get the showing idea? The, the, the tap is about to be turned off for Renfield, the blood slave. Uh, this guy, Naudo, we'll hear about him. Uh, he was on the surveillance footage, moving boxes from a storage room before and after the investigators put out the subpoena in May. Look for that. He said to the investigators already that he did this at Trump's request. Republicans aren't defending Trump on the substance of this. They're just embracing his contention that the Justice Department is politicized and can't be trusted. And you'll notice this. Stephen Miller, listen to all the ones defending him. Okay, none of them are defending what Trump did. And again, Attorney General Merrick Garland knew they would do this. So that's why he appointed a special counsel to investigate Trump after he announced the run for president to avoid accusations of any political interference. So, again, under the Speedy Trial Act of 74, a federal defendant must be brought to trial within 70 days of an indictment being filed. 70 days brought to trial? Jack Smith said in the statement you heard he will seek a speedy trial, but 70 days means this thing could start going before a jury, before Alvin Bragg. And that's the brilliance of this whole thing. It's so smart that they went with a little rinky-dink, piddly shit New York case first. They had to have that canary in a coal mine. They had to see if there would be violent protests for Donald Trump. And you know what? There weren't. There were no rallies. There were no riots. No one attacked anyone, and they knew it would be safe. And guess what? We've known about this for 24 hours. No violence. He cannot rely on his army of thugs to go out and commit terrorism for him after all the convictions from January 6th. Now, he's going to Florida. It will be heard by that Trump-appointed judge, Aileen Cannon. She's the one who freaked us all out last year because she ruled of the special master. Um, and remember this. When Trump was lying that Hillary Clinton had stolen classified documents, he amended the law from a misdemeanor to a felony to increase Hillary Clinton's sentence once she got convicted for taking classified documents. But, of course, the Republican Party declared her innocent, and now Donald Trump himself, schmuck that he is, is subject to that very law, which will add five years to each of the charges we have just gone through. It's beautiful. Don't let them compare this to Biden's case. It's got nothing to do with it. Biden's case is very different. For starters, a, a few dozen documents recovered in Joe Biden's house 
even fewer at the home of Mike Pence. Trump, hundreds of secret documents, including nuclear secrets. Uh, Secondly, Joe Biden was only the vice president. I mean, what's he got that's so secret? Like like Barack Obama's cell number. That's that's it. Third, Joe Biden gave his documents back right away. And so did Pence. But Trump lied and said he didn't have any. And the government spent more than a year trying to get the government their own documents back. You can be happy about this. It's funny. It's tragic. It's messed up. Our allies are going to look at this and our allies are going to know that their national security details were sitting next to a toilet in the basement at this retirement home in Florida for any drunk foreign national to wander in and enjoy as toilet reading. Just think about that. Think about the hoops Joe Biden and the State Department are going to have to jump through to calm our allies. But they've got him nailed. After he was subpoenaed for classified documents, one of his lawyers argued with him to go through all the boxes to look for classified docs. And that was Evan Corcoran. And before that review, Trump ordered Noda to remove the 64 boxes so his lawyer could not go through them. And it's all on tape. These Republicans are going to turn on each other, guys. Stay sane. All of this was preventable. If they had just stopped him in 2015 or 2016, they wouldn't be dealing with this. But now they went along with it. They cashed in. They got their tax cut. Now they're stuck with this guy. Believe me, Saudis, Russians, Chinese, there's plenty of people who have copies of these classified documents already. They had spies all over this place. And Jared didn't get $2 billion for nothing. Republicans spent two years and $7 million of your money investigating Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server. And there are boxes of classified documents next to a toilet. So what do we know? We don't know if he'll plead. We don't know if he'll make a deal. We don't know if he'll go to jail. We don't know if this will help his fundraising. We don't know if this just saved Ron DeSantis' career. We don't know if Trump's arteries will last long enough for any of this. The only thing we know, people... Hillary Clinton's getting fucked up tonight. We want to know what you think. We're at 866-997-GRIT, and we're going to party like we are in Chappaqua. Kelly in Montana, welcome, and thanks for your patience on hold. Good evening. I just uh, called in because I know you're a comedy Jesus and uh, wanted to present something kind of comedically. Present it. If, If when... Uh, Trump is convicted. You know, the the mega Republicans keep talking about Second Amendment remedies. Yeah. I was wondering, should we bring up uh, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg remedies? (laughs) Well... You can if you want. Many people will. I think that's very different. But again, we don't know all the facts. And this is a violation of the Espionage Act. I'm against the death penalty 100 percent. I'm against the death penalty for guilty people. So I'm not the right guy to ask. Uh, I'm 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 oh, with yeah, Jesus that, on that. It was supposed to be totally tongue in cheek. Oh, but I know. But and it's funny. But I but I mean, it's it. what you just said about the Rosenbergs, that talking point is not going to go away for the next six months. And the more we learn, the more it comes out, and they will now start to leak more information. You're going to hear a lot more people actually talking about executions, not just incarceration. Anyway, have a great weekend. Take care. You too. Thank you so much, Kelly. 866-997-4748. Let me go to Riley in North Carolina. Hey, Riley, welcome. Hey, John. Uh, It's a pleasure being on your show. Thank you. Uh, It's a pleasure having you. Up until, uh, oh, not too much, uh, I'm a little tired of hearing all the idiots here, uh, down in North Carolina who support Trump. Um, I know. And the insults hurled today and everything like that. I know. Uh, one thing kind of worried me, um, 
you know, it seems like um, they just brought up it being in Florida here all of a sudden. And uh, today I heard that the judge that is more or less in Trump's pocket yeah, well, is going to we'll be see the one that. hearing the case today. Um, is there anything, is that set in stone or... Um, well, uh, my understanding is that that's not necessarily set in stone, and I don't know if that judge is going to actually, if that judge would have the power to torpedo any of this. It'll be interesting to see. It's the same judge that raised a lot of eyebrows last year when she granted the special master, which I think was smart at the time. You want to give Trump as much as he can as he tries to delay to remove any argument that he's being discriminated against. And, and this very judge gave him more latitude than any private citizen like you or me would ever see. But I mean, you know, there's baggage there. We'll see how it plays out. It's it's going to yeah. be interesting. The judge, you know, she again, a, a conservative appeals court ended up overruling her last year with the special master. So we'll see what happens this time. Yeah, I just feel like they're going to drag it out. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, first time caller, uh, been a big fan for a long time, and uh, I so appreciate it. Where in North Carolina? Uh, uh, well, from Greensboro, but live in Chapel Hill. Oh, right on. Beautiful part of the country. I love North Carolina very much, man. Thank you so much for calling. Well, Have a great weekend. Come see us. You're quite welcome. Thank you. I, I sure will. I got family there, and I promised them I would. Let me get to one more call before the break. We're getting to everybody tonight. Don't worry. Uh, hello to Sean in Cali. What's up, Sean? Hey, brother. Well, uh, I was going to say vertical farming in Colorado, but I thought I would go to a more relevant topic that everyone's <laughs> thinking about. Please do. You know, so I, <laughs> well, I got this thing first. Jack Smith, not a member of the chicken shit club when it comes to prosecutors. Okay, number one. I mean, and he came in and did it exactly how it should be done when he talked to the American people. I agree. He, I mean, I can't even, you know, obviously I can't do that. There's no way I could ever do that because I would be going off. But he did it perfectly. And, you know, I know this might sound like hyperbolic talk, but it is not. This was the biggest breach of national security in the history of this country. Period. It may have been. I don't know enough it about has. the espionage well, history, okay. but allegedly it sure is. I mean, certainly by, well, by an elected official. Yeah. Allegedly, whatever words we need to do, maybe, whatever, <laughs> I will just go out there because I am not a practicing attorney or anybody this and I will tell you from day one I knew when everyone's hair was on fire you knew this knucklehead was putting that stuff out there and remember knucklehead Kushner which I'm glad you mentioned that with the two billion dollars from Saudi right I mean everything is about information right and, and we do take our information seriously you know, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, whatever the case. Uh, and if now we get to see all the layers of how we protect our national security secrets. It's not we'll perfect. See. And yeah. obviously, if you put a knucklehead in, uh, this is what you get. This is what you get, people. I mean, and, and it makes us less safe. And I don't everyone from attacks. No, yeah. you're right. This is another one of those scenarios where everyone is going to have to learn a whole lot of facts for all the disinformation and false talking points they're picking up on Twitter and all the arguments we'll be having with our coworkers for the next six months to a year. You know, just no, it's true. It, I mean, he was the perfect traitor, by the way. If you could invent the perfect traitor, he becomes the president of the United States. 
And again, There's I no hate to say it, it, but I, 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 I can't say that he's definitely a traitor yet. That word is very popular I to can't. use. But, you know, treason, treason, we have to, legally, you have to be in war, which we haven't declared no, but, since 1941. But I get what you're saying. But he levied war. He levied war on the seat of government. But what, can, what, what interests me is, why did he take them and what was the purpose? That's what I want to find out. Because was he, in fact, yeah. was he shopping these around for revenue to overseas sources? That's I what I so. want to know. I don't think we're ever going I mean, to find I out. I don't what know the spe- for sure. We won't know what the specific secrets were, but we may find out who he showed them to. And that would be the real scandal here. I got to run, man. It's good to hear Thanks, from you. I hope you have a great. You still in Hawaii, sir? No, no, I'm back on the mainland. So, you know, that's, you know, I figure well, if I go on vacation again, maybe he'll be in jail. I forgive you for calling me that. I, I will not forgive you for calling me while you're on the Big Island. Have a great evening. we got to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment. And I'm so excited when we come back. I, I mentioned our next guest quite a bit before in the introduction to the show. But CNN's John Blake has an amazing memoir that I promise is the antidote for all the toxic political stories you've been suffering. More than I imagined what a black man discovered about the white mother he never knew. That and your calls. We have many, many more indictment details to get to. And lots of audio of evil people freaking out out. We'll be right back. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele Podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions, have honest conversations, just keeping it real and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker or wherever you get your podcasts on, because, you know, I love it when you do. I'm so excited to talk about this next guest. I was already a big fan of John Blake for his writing on religion uh, before I even knew his backstory and what a backstory it is. Now, you probably know Mr. Blake is an award-winning journalist over there at CNN. He's been honored by the AP and the Society of Professional Journalists, the American Academy of Religion, the National Association of Black Journalists, um, and the GLAAD Media Awards. He's spoken at high schools and colleges and symposiums on documentaries on race and faith and organized religion and politics. But for the first part of his life, John Blake had a remarkable secret. Uh, Growing up in the foster system, he never knew and then found out his mother was white. 
And in his moving new memoir, More Than I Imagined What a Black Man Discovered About the White Mother He Never Knew, uh, Mr. Blake shares the disturbing details of his childhood, the incredible story of their reunion, and how the whole thing influenced the man he chose to be. It's a real pleasure to welcome John Blake to SiriusXM. Thank you, John, for having me. Thank you for being had. Again, longtime fan, first time suck up. But as a a person who talks about religion a lot, your writing has always been so intelligent and of the highest quality. And so I came to this as a fan. I I have to say it it made me an even deeper fan of you as a person. I I guess let me begin with the most um, interesting term that I think you coined uh, the expression, a closeted biracial man. That's something that I, I guess, I mean, I, I read The Human Stain years ago, but I never thought about it. A closeted biracial man. Uh, how did you come to arrive at that identity? And, and how, how did this affect your childhood as you, be, as you tried to piece together the pieces of, of what your background was? Um, I became a closeted biracial person because of the context of uh, the time when I was born and where I grew up. So I was born in the mid-60s when interracial marriage was illegal in much of the, of the country. And I was born to a black father and a white mom. But my white mom disappeared from my life when I was born and uh, without any explanation. No one told me why. And the only thing they told me was that your mother's name is Shirley. She's white and her family hates black people. Now, having a white mom in my situation was pretty inconvenient because because I grew up in one of the most notorious black neighborhoods in the United States. Um, I grew up in West Baltimore, which serves as a setting for the HBO series, The Wire. It was also the epicenter for this huge racial upheaval in 2015, uh, when a man, a black man named Freddie Gray died in police custody, Marshall Baltimore. So in my world, in my environment, nobody liked white people. So I had to hide my mother's identity because nobody liked white people. But partly part of my story was, I didn't like white people. I absorbed this hostility toward them because I knew that my mother's family wanted nothing to do with me. I felt like my mother wanted nothing to do with me because my father was black. And you didn't know any white people, right? When you were growing up, you weren't no, around you, Caucasians. Seeing a, seeing a white person in my neighborhood was like seeing Bigfoot. I mean, it, they just <laughs> didn't come through there. During my entire time in public school, from Head Start to senior high school, I only saw one white student. So it was a very racially segregated poor neighborhood um and i called it growing up in the jim crow north and uh, it was just extremely segregated is, is it true that you you marked your mother's race as black on all your school yeah. forms yeah it was a it was a mark of shame because um if people knew that your mom was white you would get into fights uh you would get all sorts of problems and i and i, th- I think part of me also i wanted I think it was wish it was a wish on my part that my mother wasn't white and and I just thought it would be easier for people not to know and for me not to think about it. Yeah. Now of course when you're 17 you decided you wanted to meet your mother and and forge this connection. What was it that made you decide at that age that it was the right time? Well it, it was really an invitation. I um it was uh I was 17 on my way to college. And I had uh, kind of obliterated my the white side of my identity. I didn't think about it. I didn't want to think about it. I was going to go to Howard University, which is the preeminent black university in the United States. So, um, And then one day when I was uh, about to go to college, my father called me in a room and he said, hey, do you want to meet your mom? And I w- it was like a bombshell. And three days later, I found myself driven out to this uh, 
this really forbidding, this menacing looking red brick building. It looked like the set for the Shawshank Redemption. Right. And I was guided into this room and uh, that's where I met my mom. And it was a shock when I met her because she was totally unlike what I expected. Now, you, you write about how your dad's family did not share with you for a long time that your mother had struggled with, with mental illness. Right. Um, I know that when you met her for the first time, um, she asked you for some St. Jude prayer books. And, and I'm curious yeah. what that was a whole other level uh, to this yeah. meeting. It must have been a lot for you to absorb at age 17. Yeah, it was a lot to absorb. And it took me years to figure out why my mom became like she did, uh, how her family, uh, why her family wanted nothing to do with me. But what was immediate, obviously, what was like really obvious to me at that time is that when I first met her, it began to shift my racial attitudes. Right. So I met her in a mental institution and it's a hellish place to be in. And I remember going in there and I could hear people moaning in pain in the background. Um, others were like laughing hysterically. And as I began to talk to my mom, I began to think, wow, she's been in this hellish place for like most of my life. And I thought to myself before that meeting, um, I thought that no white person could relate to what it meant to be black, to be looked yeah. down on just because of the way you were born. But when I saw my mom that way, I said, I've never seen a black person suffer like this. So she shattered that assumption about white people within the first 15 minutes of me talking to her. I, and she didn't even have to say that much. So for the first time in my life, I began to develop empathy for a white person. Amazing. Oh, you mentioned St. Jude. Yeah. And one of the things that I would, I would, I, I would subsequently learn about my mom, um, and there were many things that surprised me, is the depth of her Catholic faith. She, yeah. she went, I mean, just imagine it, a woman, a young white woman who defied her family and her community to have two black sons in the mid 60s, and her sons are taken away from them, from her not long after she was born. So she went through a lot of suffering, but she relied so much on St. Jude prayer book. That's all she wanted from me. She just answered it. Give me a St. Jude medal. Give me a St. Jude prayer book. But that was the type of hope that got her through day to day. But that that really hit me hard in reading it because you're you're you know Saint Jude is the patron saint of of lost causes yeah. and your mother really yeah. did view herself that way, didn't she? She did, John. And the thing is that was remarkable about me getting to know her is that I first viewed her that way, but in the end, as I learned more about her, I did not view her that way. Um, one of the things for people who might have someone close to them who struggle with a mental illness, particularly if it's severe is that sometimes it's hard to see the person beyond the illness. You just see the illness. And I began to see that a lot of what my mom was, her defiance, that feistiness that made her defy her family was still there. It just took me a while. But to go back to what you said about the hopeless cause, my mom fills me, me, fills me with a tremendous sense of hope. And what I, what I think about is that when she met my mom, about father in the mid 60s, Interracial marriage was like disapproved, like something like 94% yeah. of Americans disapproved of it. And I asked myself, you look at what happens today. Interracial marriage, biracial children, that's so normal. Like, how did that happen? And part of the reason it happened, a major reason it is, it, is that people like my mom and my dad and other people like that in the mid 60s says, I don't believe in this crap about race. I'm going to love who I'm going to love. Right. And when enough of them begin to do it, they created this new norm that love is love. So I tell people that my mom shows me that people who seem like they have no power have tremendous power to remake America. And she's, and I'm living proof of that. Amen. 
you know, your your grandfather emerges oh, as yeah. a, a, a quite a powerful character in this. He, he's someone who assaulted yeah. your 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 father. He is someone who had he wanted nothing to do with you, and um, he rejected you at birth. And and you you talk about being haunted by this white grandfather, uh, or even you haunting him. And I'm curious, what was your your process that went into including uh, this dynamic as part of your story? The process was much fear and trembling because people told me, don't put that in the book because people are going to be alienated because it's such a strange addition, a dimension to the story when you're talking about, you know, visitations and apparitions. Yeah, but you're I, you're literally talking about about haunting. I I I want yeah, to yeah. that, please. Yeah, and I and I I didn't want to initially put that in there, but I I would not have put it in there for two reasons. One, if not for two reasons, one is, um, every time those experiences happened with my white grandfather, someone was there and they also saw and experienced what I saw. So it wasn't just me. And two, it was an integral part of the story. And let me be more specific. My white grandfather also wanted nothing to do with me. But unlike my mother, I never met him. He yeah. died before he met me. So he chose not to see me or my younger brother because we were black. And But I didn't know any of this. So as a kid, I had my first visitation along with my younger brother and then speed it up as an adult. The same thing happened to me tw twice. And so I had to figure out what did he want from me? And one of the things I had to figure out is I had to talk to ministers and other people. And I had to find out in a way Though he was haunting me, I haunted him. And I had to yes. figure out what it was and address it. And I had to do that through spiritual tools, through prayer, forgiveness, empathy. But that's what your whole story is. I mean, when you were a child, yeah. your, your father, who, who wasn't a very religious guy, he, he, he put you in a foster home that he thought was a gift from God. And, and you describe right. it as a, a, an actual very hateful place. So much of your story is about you being faced with these tragedies or adversities or negativities or, or moments of deep pain. And instead of turning you into a heartless person, they make your empathy even deeper. And I'm curious, what, how, how did that experience in the foster home um, affect you spiritually and, and as a young man? Well, it was very difficult. And um, when I try to think about how I came out on the other side of that, I think about something this psychologist once said. He said that love received and love given is the best form of therapy. And so I received a lot of love from some crucial people early in my life. And I was able to give back some of that love because I had been loved. So that helped me get through the foster home. So though I went through that foster home, I had an aunt that would watch me over the weekend and she was like a surrogate mom. Right. So, and she exposed me to the church. She exposed me to faith. She taught me about hope. And that helped me get through a lot of those tough times and to be more empathetic toward people. And I think one of the other things that really inspired me as I got older, and I began to meet these white members of my family who were very racist, who thought that white black people shouldn't have anything to do with one another. Yeah. When I began to see how they changed, they began to, become, began to own up to their racism and change in ways I never expected. That also filled me with a lot of hope and helped me kind of deal with any kind of bitterness I could have had. Well, I mean, you know, I mentioned I was a fan of your writing uh, on religion, and that is to say you're writing about, you know, the teaching of Jesus versus what right. some unauthorized Jesus fan clubs might fight for. And you mentioned that you were drawn to the stories of Jesus and, and how he obliterated divisions yes. that stood between people, ethnicity, gender and class. And I'm curious, what did your study of, of the Gospels, of, of, of the character of Jesus and his ministry and his activism 
what role did that play in terms of how you viewed yourself and your identity? It was crucial because I, I tell people, like, when people invited me to church and they they talked about these theories of salvation and atonement and you have to go to heaven, that meant nothing. It was too abstract. But yeah. when I started to go to these interracial churches when I was younger, and I saw black, white, and brown people hug one another, call each other sister and brother, date one another, go to each other's homes to have pizza, uh, pray with one another. That's the first time I'd ever seen anything like that. And when I began to read more about the Gospels in the New Testament, I read about a Jesus who had a zealot and a tax collector. That's like having somebody like a Trump follower and a Black Lives Matter calling each other brother. And I began to read about how the first century church was also driven by all these ethnic divisions and these gender divisions, but they transcended it because of their belief in Jesus. That really spoke powerfully to me because I was trying to do the same thing with my family. So reading that story gave me a model and it gave me spiritual tools to do that with my own family. Absolutely. Um, it's, I have to ask, how did your life change after you met your mother and, and made these discoveries? That's really what the book's about. I think, um, what did facing this and facing all of this programmed shame, the shame you were groomed to feel, to feel, what did it do for you after you finally met her? It was weird because it was like full circle. I, in the beginning, when I was a kid, before I knew her, I was ashamed because she was white. And then when I became a young man, I didn't want anyone to know about her illness. So I was ashamed of her because she had this mental illness. But now today, it's like I am so proud to be the son of such a defiant, faithful, resilient woman, and also a father who was also a very powerful figure in his own way, though he was flawed. But he he set a really good example in a lot of ways, too. So that that shame turned to pride. And like I say, my mom, I mean, she did think she did something in the mid 60s that so few white people could do. She saw her common humanity with black people and she was willing to pay a price to put those beliefs into action. So I'm, my mom is, she was a powerhouse. It's such a moving story. And, 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 you know, you, you call your book, um, a non-traditional story on race and faith. And I think that's a beautiful way of looking at it because this book is as much about spirituality as it is about race and, and, and racism. And as you know, you work in an interesting place and you know how the political divisions are ratcheted up, oftentimes ratcheted up by media culture for the ratings and racism is coming back in ways we hadn't expected. And this new racism of the denial of the existence of racism to write a book like this at this time, I, I have to wonder what, what in your heart is your hope, um, for this book and for, uh, and, and what this book could do. I wasn't really prepared for how universal the themes in this book are. Yeah, it's a really good question. I've been thinking about it because when I was writing the book, I was so tired. I wasn't, I was just trying to tell the story. And now I'm thinking about the implications of it. But I think one of the big things I hope is that I've been a journalist and I've covered the racial divisions in this country for like 25 years. I've seen the worst. I've covered, you know, Charlottesville, Ferguson, Rodney King. I covered that right. And then I've experienced the worst of white racism from my white family members, but they changed. And one of the things I'm disturbed about right now is I have never seen so much pessimism and fatalism in this country. It's like people have given up on the future. They feel yeah. like we can't get past racism, that we can't be this this multicultural, multi-religious democracy. And what I tell people is like, um, people can change in ways you don't you, you you would never expect. And I know that because I've seen it in my family. So the main thing I wanted to do is really 
tell the story about my mom and my dad, but I also think it's really important that we tell stories that acknowledge racism in a clear-cut yeah. way, but also acknowledge the possibility of change. And I think that's crucial. I say, he who tells the best story wins. If people are telling stories about making America great again, that those brown immigrants are taking your job, that's one story. But what are the stories we're telling to counter that, to say there's another way to be? And that's part of what I wanted to show in my story. Amen. CNN's John Blake is the author of the very powerful and moving memoir, More Than I Imagined, What a Black Man Discovered About the White Mother He Never Knew. I can't wait to see who plays you in the movie. Uh, Mr. Blake, what is the best way for our listeners to follow you and keep up with your with your many doings? Oh, thank you. Um, I'm very accessible on Facebook and Twitter. And I have a, a, a website, John K. Blake. I'm pretty reachable. Right on. John Blake, it's really an honor. Please come back anytime. This platform is always open to you. And if you're on hold, we will be getting to your calls at 866-997-4748. Yes, we have much more to talk about regarding you know what. This is Progress. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is SiriusXM Progress. I'm John Fugelsang, and we are taking your calls. Now, listen, I know you're excited about this. I don't want to I don't want to make you too happy. I don't want to get your hopes up too high. But the House Ethics Committee has quietly, gently, gingerly reopened the probe into Matt Gates. Uh, he has gotten some bad news today. They are looking once again into the investigation, into the allegations that he had a sexual relationship with a 17-year-old and paid her to travel with him. And allegedly, reportedly, according to sources on that bullshit talk, the community will investigate whether Gates, quote, engaged in sexual misconduct and or illicit drug use, shared inappropriate images or videos on the House floor, misused state identification records, converted campaign funds to personal use, and or accepted a bribe, improper gratuity, or impermissible gift in violation of House rules, laws, or other standards of conduct. Now, the Ethics Committee hasn't said if they're going to launch a special subcommittee to escalate this investigation, but this is a good thing. I'm thrilled about it. Again, Matt Gates investigated, Donald Trump indicted, and uh, Pat Robertson leaves the building. I don't know about you. Pride Month? It's going pretty good. Stephen from Kentucky, come on down. Hello. Hello. How are you this evening? Better now that you're here. How are you? I'm doing all right. John, I wanted to ask you, too, perhaps. Please. Next Please. year. Yes. For the, 50, for the uh, 60th anniversary, well, it's not an anniversary, more or less, but Mary Meyer, I've mentioned her before, and since the Kennedy assassination will be 60 this year in November. That's right. 
That's I right. wanted to see if perhaps maybe next year you'd have an author who wrote about Mary Penchant Meyer, possibly. You know, Mary would have been dead 60 years next year, too. She was actually uh, JFK's parent, one of his paramours that he knew ah. way back when. And she was murdered, actually, a year after JFK's death. And they never did figure out who murdered her, by the way. Really? And I never knew this. Yeah, well, Mary was an artist in D.C., and she had a studio in Georgetown where she lived, close to where she lived. She was Benjamin Bradley's sister-in-law, by the way. Oh, okay. And wow. she, she, had a, she had a diary that she kept. Uh, JFK and her did LSD in the White House closet. What? And they both were involved. They were involved. She, she what? actually... Had, Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was back in 1963. Timothy Leary wrote about it, actually, believe it or not. This, it I, I, we, listen, I've, I've heard of the stuff that Warren Harding would do with his girlfriend in the White House closet. I never heard that JFK was doing this. It's, but, I mean, that's what they did. I don't know if he did it frequently, but I know he with did JFK, it. With it's JFK, all about sec- it's, it's all about playing sexual clue, right? Like, JFK did it in the Lincoln bedroom with Judith Campbell Exner. I mean, it's always, it's always something. Well, the strip trister is always fun too. But <laughs> tell me, the, tell me the name. Tell me, tell me the name of the book again, please. Well, I don't know the name of the book, but I was going. I was wanting to see perhaps maybe if you could find an author who I can't think of the name um, of, of the person who wrote a book about Mary. I think Mary should be recognized. I really do. She she was not. A lot of people write her off as oh well, she was a tramp. No, she was not. She was a very sophisticated woman, and she was also a very renowned artist. And she had she loved her two sons. She kept that diary and gave it to Benjamin Bradley to make sure that after if something happened to her, that her sons were protected. I had no idea. I, Tell me her name again. Tell I, me her name now. You're now I've got to go down the rabbit hole and research her all weekend. Tell me her name one more time. Mary Penchant, P-I-N-C-H-O-T, Meyer, and I believe it's M-E-Y-E-R. And she was born in 1920, and she died, actually she was born in October of 1920, and she died two days before her 44th birthday. And she was shot execution style. She was, she would, they shot her, she was jogging on the towpath in Washington. I know that story, yes, yes, I know that story. Yes, yeah, and she was a marvelous woman in real life. She really was, and I think she should be recognized. Now, I did want to say about Donald Trump. Please. And this indictment. I do wonder, perhaps, if some of those documents that they found, perhaps it contains blackmail information on people in Washington. Maybe he was planning on trying to blackmail the president, the current president, over something. And because mm. I would not be surprised if you really think about it, this man, everyone's so scared of him, it seems like, because they're afraid of being run roughshod over him. Yeah. And I would not be surprised if he tried to sell these to Putin. And if he did, what I would suggest is this. I would not allow him to leave this country. Some people say let him go to Russia. No, do not let him go to Russia at all, because the fact is 
and, and also, he should be required to get some sort of psychiatric care in prison. That should be a requirement <laughs> on this. It should. Maybe. I'm not, I, I, again, I don't think he's ever going to prison, Stephen. I, I get this. This is my unpopular opinion. They yell at me on Stephanie Miller for this every week. They yelled at me this morning for it. I just, I just don't see it. I think he's the most likely thing, having watched Trump do this many times, most likely he cops a, he, he, he cops a deal. Well, I don't. I don't really don't know about that this time. When you see all this stuff about nuclear weapons and military info, that I, know. I think this. I think this is just. I think he is beyond. I think this is beyond him. I really do. What What I think everybody needs to take from this, though, is this is a wake up call for everyone in this country right now. It's not to. It's not to sit there and be gleeful, but it sure as hell is not to sit there and be in denial either. It is time for reform in this country. We need to yes. start making sure that presidential candidates go through some sort of psychiatric test to make I sure. I don't know how you can do. You can't. I don't. I don't know how you can do that. I don't. I'm sorry. I don't know how you can do that. It's like I'd like to see a president take a citizenship test. I'd like to see everyone running for president have to take the same citizenship test that immigrants have to take. I'd settle for a literacy test, but you know the requirements. They have to have been, you know, born American citizens. They have to be over age 35. They have to have lived in the U.S. for the last 14 years. That's it. Well, see, the problem is, though, if we don't do something of this nature, we're going to continue to have this. I think this indictment was, I think, to be honest, and some people might think I'm a fruitcake for saying this, but so what? The point is, I think God is intervening here. I really believe that because so many people are afraid right now of, you know, possibly our country becoming a dictatorship in this. This is it. This is symbolic of the fact that freedom reigns. It really yeah, does. And that. things can be turned around. They can be. I, I'm, I'm talking not only from that perspective, but I've had people tell me I would never recover. And I'm on the road to recovery right now after 16 years. So the fact is things can turn themselves around. And, I love that. And the thing is that, well, people have to remember this. We went through that uh, possible uh, nuclear uh, crisis a couple of years ago when, with Kim Jong-un around uh, Christmas time of yes. 20, uh, 2018, 2019. And I have to say, I think our guardian angels were looking out for us then. And I do believe now, I don't think he'll ever be able to run for president again. And I also w- would even go further than that. I think we need to ensure that his family does not run for president ever <laughs> again either. Because I wish I we think- could do that. I wish we could do that, but we can't. We can't do that. In this society, I, I actually, I'm not sure I'm on page with, with, with only two terms. I, I'm a big believer in democracy, and the American people should be able to vote for who they want. Well, why, why, why shouldn't we be able to do this? Because obviously we have to take some sort of action. Well, we can change sure the rules if we want. If we all get on the same page and can change the rules in the Constitution, good luck with that. But uh, well, honestly, I don't want Donald Trump knocked out. I, I, I'm sorry. I think he is the most beatable of every Republican running. And I don't want all of our labors to take down Donald Trump to get Ron DeSantis elected president. I know it's well, risky, but I'd rather see... The, I'd rather see the old man. I'd rather see the old man go up against Donald Trump than any of the other Republicans. Well, I don't think Ron DeSantis has a chance in hell, if you want to know Mm. the truth. And I wanted to just mention something else, that in our Constitution, it states that if you engage in subversive activity, you're disqualified from running for office. So the question remains, now that we know the truth about all of this, are they going to go with the Constitution as they claim that they're trying to do now, or are they going to sit there and dismiss it? 
because we'll the point see. is, this man should not be allowed to run at this point. We all know he, he's guilty of this. And, and in but a he, way... I disagree. We sh- he should be allowed to run. We should well, be able to vote for whoever we want in this country. Bobby well, Sands ran for the Parliament of the UK while in prison on a hunger strike. Like, I, I, I'm sorry. I, just because I don't like Donald Trump doesn't mean I can get on board with this. We have to be... Not, he, should be allowed, he should be allowed to run for president if he's in prison. Well, I have to say, John... Though, yes. I understand where you're coming from, but I still think, though, that this, uh, that uh, our national security is more important than politics in this case. I'm sorry. I think I it do. is. I'm with and, you. I'm with you. And, I, and I'm sorry. I can go along with that. I think this man, we need to make him, him an example. We didn't do okay. this with Nixon in 74, and this is why we're here right now. I know. Now. We didn't do it with the Confederacy in, in 65. No, uh, so but, you're, you're right. I mean, you're right. National security is more important than my desire to have Donald Trump be well, no, a spoiler I understand, candidate. I understand where you're coming from. I do. Yeah, I really do. I, I, I would I, like to I, get old Joe reelected, and I think Donald Trump is the best safest, cleanest path to getting old Joe another four years. Why do you think he won't get reelected now? I mean, obviously, Biden obviously has some accomplishments. Yes, he does. But because because the billionaires in this country really don't want Joe Biden to be president again, there are billionaires that are going to pump money into Robert Kennedy's campaign. They're so desperate to get rid of Joe Biden. And I'm sorry, any president that's that hated by that many billionaires, I'm going to look out for him. I'm going to lean well, in and see why. Franklin Roosevelt, I might remind you, though, Franklin Roosevelt was hated by many as well. Yes, he was, and he was proud he of it. Look at how That's he correct. failed four times. And and Franklin so Roosevelt was, had a better, but Franklin Roosevelt was better at spinning that to his advantage with working class people than any president that's come since. Well, that's true, but I do think, though, at the same time, it seems like to me the last several election cycles have pretty much stated that people do not want Trumpism, and I think they're getting to the point where they do not want extremism. People yeah. want to be free, and all this stuff about book banning and all this stuff about, and I'm not crazy about abortion, but at the same time, the way they're going about doing this is just ridiculous. How can yeah. you say you're pro-law and order and then turn around and force a 12-year-old girl who's raped by some pervert that she should have to carry his spawn. No, that, that's, that's ridiculous. Oh, I know how they can do it. I know how they can do it because they're in a cult. And whatever is convenient well, and feels good is what God wants. I have a lot well, they, of experience with those kind of people. Well, they obviously know nothing about God because the fact is Pat Robertson obviously didn't either. And the fact is if they knew something about God, they'd understand that God is about freedom. God is about enlightenment. God you. is not about God is not about taking advantage I know. of I read the book. girls. I know, but their God is a fat racist landlord from Queens who now lives in a Florida retirement home. We gotta go, Stephen. You're a brilliant man, and I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Uh, when we come back, I've been talking about this. I'm very, very excited. Three classic Richard Pryor albums, live at the Comedy Store, uh, and his first two albums, Richard Pryor and Craps, are now available on vinyl. They've been reissued for very good reason. And who would have thought 50 years later, (laughs) Live at the Comedy Store 73 gets to premiere on vinyl. We'll be right back to talk with Dan Schlissel from Stand Up Records. This is Progress. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. 
Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. So Richard Pryor, in the holy trinity of great political comics, you know, there's Carlin and there's Lenny and there's Richard. Richard Pryor's influence, I always say, is like the Big Bang. It is still expanding. And like Carlin, but unlike Lenny Bruce, it's shocking how relevant the material still is today and how influential the material still is today. And that's why I was so thrilled to learn that stand-up records, along with Omnivore Records and Richard Pryor's production company, Indigo, is going to be announcing uh, the release of Live at the Comedy Store 1973, making its debut first time ever on vinyl, and his first two albums, Richard Pryor, with the most memorable album cover of all time, and Craps After Hours, newly remastered on vinyl with bonus material. They're already out. And to talk about it, I'm really glad to bring a, a true hero, someone who has been instrumental in getting a lot of great comedy put out on records. Dan Schlissel has had an odd route to comedy. Uh, it came through Nebraska punk rock. He started the now-famed Ism, Ismist recordings in his dorm room. And in 98, uh, Mr. Schlissel moved to Minneapolis, where he met our good friend Louis Black, for whom he produced six records, including three that were nominated and one that won the Grammy, the Carnegie Hall performance. It's a great pleasure to welcome Dan Schlissel of Stan records to Sirius XM. Hello, sir. Hey, John, how are you doing? I'm great. It's so good to see you. How are you doing? I am doing well, man. When I hear that introduction, it's almost like I should be impressed with myself. <laughs> well, I'm impressed. I, I have I, I love stand up records. I've told you this in the past. So many of my friends have put out great records before. And, you know, anytime there's anything resembling new content for Carlin or, or Richard, it's, it's, it's very rare. So when I heard about this, I got to be honest, you had me at bonus material. <laughs> that's, that's so good to hear. What is the story? Uh, yeah, of, go ahead, please. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was, I was just curious. What was the story that came to this great uh, release? It's sort of like a vinyl box set, putting all three records out at the same time. It is. It was a circuitous route. I was initially trying to get uh, vinyl rights secured for uh, Live at the Comedy Store 1973 years ago because it had come out as a promotional CD that came with a pre-order of the uh, No Prior Restraint box set. Right, right. Never before released. Yeah, never before released before that. And even then, you had to pre-order the box set to get it. So I thought, here's something unique to put out that nobody's really ever had the experience of hearing on a turntable. Well, fortune is weird, and it things sort of dissipated, and it didn't happen. It vanished in the mist. Well, years later, 
uh, Omnivore is doing reissues for Richard Pryor and for Craps After Hours. And I approach them and we start negotiating back and forth. And on the sly, they kind of said to me, hey, we're going to do a third album. Might you want it? I go, well, what's the third album? They go, you can't tell anyone. I go, I'm not going to say anything. And they unveiled Live at the Comedy Store, 1973. And I just laughed and I said, absolutely. Welcome back home. Wow. I want to I want to just for our listeners, give a little sense of where Richard Pryor was in his life and in his career at this time, because, you know, this was a period where I've always heard that, he, you know, he, he was sort of like, who am I at this point? What am I doing coming out here and telling all these jokes for predominantly white audiences? And he sort of went back to basics and began hanging out with the Black Panthers and hanging out with a lot of great writers and great artists and geniuses. And the Richard Pryor that walked on stage at the Comedy Store in late October of 1973 was a, a pretty different Richard Pryor than the one who had become famous on TV. It's it's crazy. He, right before he disappeared with, after the recording of the first album, and when I say disappeared, that's kind of putting too fine a point on it. He kind of got disillusioned with trying to be basically a uh, Bill Cosby imitator and doing all the Merv Griffins and Ed Sullivan shows of the day and having appearances at the Aladdin in Vegas and performing for audiences that really he had to really mute a lot of what he grew up around to, to carry over to that audience. And he just sort of had to examine himself for a while. And he famously walked off stage at the Aladdin after, after saying something he shouldn't have said on stage, but they allowed him to come back and finish out his contract. But after he finished out his contract, he in the Northridge earthquake happened. He kind of left the Beverly Hills area and went up to the, the Bay area in San Francisco and Berkeley and those, that area of the country and kind of took apart every one of his experiences of having been born in Peoria and raised in a brothel and, and, and trying to disassemble that from what he had tried to become on TV, uh, trying to carry over to a, a broad slash white audience. Yeah. And he just reconstituted it in the context of uh, Black Panther uh, education and the free speech movement and all of those things and brought those elements in to really examine who he was and get to the root of it and get to where the real funny was. And as a result, he, he tapped into this timeless, ageless comedy that is just as relevant now as when he recorded it. Well, that's what's fascinating. This was a couple of years before he won the the Grammy in 74 for uh, the, the classic, you know, the, that N words crazy, I guess we're going to call it. Um, I call it, it Richard me, Pryor is crazy. Richard Pryor. OK, very nice. Yeah. Um, he actually had some very, very funny takes on that when they put out the and it's deep Two box set a couple of years back, um, how he re, he rewrote the title for the bonus disc. But right. um, I, I, I was thinking about George Carlin and the complaints and grievances album. Because that was originally going to be a record that was um, called I Kind of Like It When a Lot of People Die. And then 9-11 mm -hmm. happened and he rewrote chunks of it to make it complaints and grievances. And just a couple of years ago, they finally released him at the store doing uh, the original set. Checking out this uh, 1973 set, it seems like almost like a prequel to uh, Richard Pryor's Crazy, the big Grammy winning album. You hear some material that is sort of the seed of what it eventually becomes when he wins the Grammy on that big album. 
Well, you're 100 percent correct in your assessment here, because the the comedy store recording that we have that we just did this record for, it was not meant for public consumption at all. It was really the first two shows out of four shows that he was doing at the comedy store to prepare for a run at a soul club, uh, the soul train club up in San Francisco and to get ready for a Kennedy Center performance. And those two performances uh, were supposed to be him getting ready for or for recording Richard Pryor is crazy. So he, he comedy store 73 is him dusting off that material and figuring out where he wants every piece to fit and how he wants it to flow. You're seeing the yeah. beginning of the process that becomes Richard Pryor is crazy. Yeah, it's really interesting because you, you, you hear some jokes not totally land with this club audience. I mean, he's he's going really dirty. He's really pushing the boundaries. He's really, you know, recasting himself and, and he's taking risks. Not every punchline gets a huge ovation. And that's often, as you already know, how it is when you start on a new hour, basically, or trying to get your thoughts back together into that format. Absolutely. Let, let, let me ask about the, the Richard Pryor album, because I'm thrilled that that's being released. And, and I mean, that's that's a record that uh, is incredibly controversial for a, a really hilarious and yet um, an album cover designed to be innocent and yet make a lot of white people really uncomfortable. Absolutely. The photo shoot was uh, Richard's idea. And he basically wanted to be very National Geographic. So he made himself look like a native. And they and they shot the photos in Griffith Parks right in the middle of Los Angeles. So it's not like they went to some crazy setting. They did it in one of the biggest cities in America. And they just, Richard is knowingly staring straight at the camera to let you know that he is aware of what this is. And he wants you to be confronted by it and be uncomfortable. And they even got in trouble with National Geographic. They had uh, surf artist Rick Griffin draw the border for the cover, and it just looked too close. And it looks so close. It got upset. But that that album cover got a Grammy nomination, didn't it? It did. Yes. Which shows you that sometimes even the things that people want to tear down are like the things that people prize the most other people. And and let me geek out with you now. I, I noticed that that for the Richard Pryor album, it's a two LP vinyl edition. The original was just one. So let let me hear about the bonus footage. What is uh, what else can we get? Well, a lot of the bonus audio is uh, stuff that has never been on vinyl before, but it has been released on the And It's Deep Two box set. A mm. lot of it is just alternate takes. It's an actually when I say just the bonus material is longer than the album. There's an hour of bonus material on that particular record, and the album itself is only about 35, 38 minutes. So it's just a lot of his other material that didn't make the cut that was recorded at the same time, or it was different takes of some of the same material where he goes into wildly different areas and improvises with the audience, stuff that you would never hear on the final album. Right. And then finally, um, the uh, there's this expanded edition of Craps After Hours from 1971. That was Richard's first for Laugh Records. Um, I knew that Richard Pryor had been a writer for Sanford and Son. I didn't know this album was recorded at Red Fox's Club in Hollywood. And it was recorded like just a couple weeks before Red Fox's Club burned down. That's right. That's so, right. you know, it was right there on Restaurant Row, but, you know, it didn't the club didn't last much longer after that. So I guess he literally burnt down the house, you know. <laughs> and how does the material sound? It, it sounds so fresh. It, it, it literally sounds like it could have been recorded yesterday. Um, 
it's just fresh and current. There's not a lot of anything to date it. There's some Nixon references here and there, but I mean, if you substitute that in for the leader of the Republican Party now, it's it's right. still fairly accurate because both people are you know sort of criminal in the same way. But you're the guy to ask about this. I mean, are you ever astonished at how well so much of Richard Pryor and George Carlin's bits have aged, how young people can share these clips on YouTube all or Twitter all day long as a as opposed to Lenny Bruce? I mean, I love Lenny. I love his story. I love seeing plays and films about him. But a lot of those albums, um, I say with respect, are are kind of archaeological in many ways, more than something you put on to laugh at. Oh, absolutely. Well, because Lenny was more of a jazz man. So Lenny would play with what was currently happening there. And you had to be with it. You had to be hip. You had to flow with it. You had to read the paper. That's what Lenny was about. He was about playing what was going on, not just in the audience, which is what a comic normally does, but what is going on in the zeitgeist at the same exact time. And uh, I think that George and Richard both learned to remove themselves, probably from being fans of Lenny's, and and remove themselves from that tied to the date thing and and, yeah, and become more right. elevated and more socially conscious and more timeless yeah i mean that's the challenge in political comedy let me tell you <laughs> i've learned um you can be current but if you can be evergreen current that's the stuff you put on a record well and lenny suffers from something that a, a dear friend of mine said always says is uh you know the first the second mouse gets the cheese so that implies the first mouse gets its neck broken. Well, Lenny is the first mouse. Exactly. You're right. You're right. It's a brilliant way of, of putting it. You know, yeah. I have to ask you the inevitable question of um, how you think Richard would do in today's um, modern comedy scene. I don't really subscribe to this cancel culture talk. Uh, I, I kind of feel like, you know, PC issues have always been around. Uh, comedians have always had the struggle and the challenge for decades has always been you know, can you make it funny? If you can make it funny, you get away with it. Do you think that Richard would would have more trouble now than he would have had when he started out? No, I think Richard would have handled this deftly, maybe not always properly. But I mean, you have to remember Richard Pryor famously went on stage at the Hollywood Bowl for a benefit for gay people and That's just right. like destroyed everything basically he got ticked off at the audience and he had the right to because he actually was a member kind of of the gay community he had plenty of gay experiences he didn't shy away from them he wasn't ever really That's ashamed right. of talking about it oh he talked so, about he talked him, about marlon brando on stage he talked about marlon brando hitting on him on stage and then quincy jones verified all of that decades later yeah. So, I mean, as far as Richard goes, the rules don't really apply because he could dance in and out of those like it was nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, you're exactly right. One, one of the things that came to me in listening to these that I, I really forgot is that Richard did something, though, that I think would be even edgier than his dirtiest material. And that is he did character monologues as part of his stand-up act. And in many ways, that's a bit of a lost art. You know, he he would think nothing of breaking into doing Mudbone for, you know, a solid 10 minutes in the middle of his act. And that is, in a way, I think, something that would be even more foreign to young listeners than, um, you know, talk of Nixon. It'd be really hard for people to follow it now because, I mean, nobody since pretty much Whoopi Goldberg really does that sort of thing anymore. I mean, they do you it know, in theaters. They do it in theaters and in, in you know, monology shows, but not in comedy clubs. I mean, you can just get a set just saying, my name is Mudbone. Pryor, and go ahead, please. 
No, you were you're one hundred percent right. But a lot of times he would be in theaters, not always in nightclubs. So he did graduate to that more advanced level. But then he would still bring it back to the nightclub because to him, one audience is one audience, and that's that. Yeah, this is so fantastic, and all three records are on sale right now. Uh, Dan Schlissel, before I, I let you go, let me ask you the the most obvious question: What is your hope? with these reissues what would you like young and rising comics to take away from listening to these records for the first time because i know it's vinyl it's for collectors but there will be some people who will behold this material for the first time because of your reissues and and what would you like young creatives to take away from this i'd like to take i'd like them to think more about uh what it is that they're saying on stage not from a politically correct standpoint but from a really tearing yourself apart to get to the truths about yourself as opposed to you know ineffective observational comedy or you know whatever's going to appeal to an algorithm on some social media stream it really is you know what is funny what is truth and how do you get to those things and how do you confront some of your own experience You're right. because those types of things are more broad to an audience than, than any kind of reference to any kind of current thing or any kind of algorithm thing or any of that. Dan, you're right. I think Richard Pryor made it all right for all of us to go on stage and talk about setting ourselves on fire while we're freebasing. That kind of, he, he, I, we can all do it now. It's it, We've all been there. Um, before I let you go, <laughs> what is the best way for our listeners to learn more about stand-up records and what else is on the horizon for stand-up records? Uh, well, as far as what else is on the horizon, we're working on a record for Sam Miller right now. We're working on uh, hopefully a holiday single of uh, Tom Lehrer songs. And uh, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just think there's a couple of really beautiful, innocent things to share there that are poisoning the well at the same time. And, uh, you know, there's a box set I'm working on of uh, five comedians that were important to my label's uh, development that I'm not nice. ready to fully announce yet, but I'll tease that. Okay. And uh, the way to find out about us is at standuprecords.com or any of the uh, main social medias at standup records. Uh, Dan Schlissel, what a great pleasure to have you and to see you again. Uh, congratulations and thank you so much for all the work in getting these gorgeous, beautiful albums finally released on vinyl with so many bonus features. It's really a gift you're giving to all of comedy. Thank you so much, John. Thanks for the kindness of having me on. And it's, it's a, my pleasure to talk to you again. Anytime. I love what you guys do. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You have a great night. Right on. We are at 866-997-4748. 866-997-GRIT. Before I get to your calls, could I just play this one clip? Uh, this is also from Fox News earlier today. This is A5, Captain. Um, Mark Levin. Mark, Mark, Mark Levin. Am I, is, am I saying it too deep? Mark Levin. I can't go higher than that. His voice is actually about two octaves higher. Um, Mark Levin's upset that the authorities would treat an elderly man the way they're treating Donald Trump. Surely we are in a totalitarian regime. Give a listen to how they're going to try to attack law and order. President Trump is 76 years old. If the Department of Justice gets his way, he will die in federal prison. Just by one of these counts, conspiracy to obstruct justice, which has a 20-year maximum sentence. Wow, he must be really guilty. This is a disgusting, disgusting uh, mark on American history for the future to come mm. by these bandits in the White House, by the Democrat Party. He felt the they same way about the Emancipation Proclamation. They don't want to just win elections. They want to take control of this country. They want one-party rule. 
and they have <laughs> used the Department of Justice and the FBI to get what they want. Merrick Garland is a mob lawyer. That's what he is. <laughs> Jack Reed is a rogue. Jack Soviet Reed is a dead communist. This man's name is Jack the Smith. The Presidential Records Act is not a criminal statute, and it was never intended to be. The Espionage <laughs> Act of 1917 was passed under Woodrow Wilson, another corrupt president. <laughs> Woodrow Wilson used it to go was. after his adversaries, and they imprisoned mm -hmm. 2,000 people. So I suppose over there at the Department of Injustice, and this clown prosecutor spent a lot of time at The Hague, they probably figured these laws could be used to try and entrap Trump. <laughs> Who will think of the seniors? My God, we can't put him in jail. That would be like putting a, you know, a, an Auschwitz guard in jail. Well, you can't. I know he oversaw the murder of millions of Jews, but you want this man to die in jail? He's 97. And his English is rusty. My God, these people. Don't let them get you upset. They're here to entertain you. Just keep telling yourself that. Let's go to the phones, shall we? George is calling from Ohio. George, thanks for your patience on hold. Thea, can you pick up George's call? My software is glitchy. Welcome, George. Hi, John. Hi. Hi, John. It's Pitlock. Hello. Oh, Pitlock. Welcome. Thank you, Thea. I, 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 I'm sorry to misidentify you as a George. Beat me by five minutes. I wanted to say, you know, if it's been a long week, go home. Make, make a bowl of popcorn, get the beverage of your choice, sit down to your computer, and watch all seven minutes and seven seconds of Mark Levine on meth. Because when he starts screaming, after that, that segment there, he starts screaming at the top of his voice. That's beautiful. And it is, the, it, screw fucking, you know, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy and everything, yeah. you know, and everything. Yeah. This is entertainment. It's a tragedy. Keep the dog out of the room. It's Keep beautiful. the dog out of the room, though. No, he is he he yeah, but no, his his he his voice will upset dogs in neighboring communities. But he is salacious crumb to Sean Hannity's job of the hut, and that is his role. Yes, but you gotta get to the screaming. That's the real entertainment value of it when he gets later into it. I yeah, I agree. And by the way, I apologize if my impression of Mark Levin is too butch. I I'm I'm trying, but I I keep lapsing yeah. into way more masculine. Why <laughs> not like this? Yeah. He's just a great man. How are you, doctor? Everything good with you, doctor? Yeah, well, I just had my second cataract taken out ye yesterday, so now I'm kind of uh, weird because I haven't worn, I'm not wearing glasses for the first time in 15 years, and it feels weird. So, wow. It, it sounds wonderful to not wear glasses, uh, but I'm still trapped with these things. Well, I'm glad you're doing well. I hope you have a great, great weekend, and thank you for calling up. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, sir. Bye-bye. Let's all laugh at Mark Levin because that's part of God's plan. Let's go to Bill in New Jersey. Bill, welcome. You're on progress. And, yeah, hey. I really dig Levin's uh, psychotic uh, stylings, you know. Yeah. It conveys manhood. It conveys calm masculinity and BD energy. Yeah. Uh -huh. uh, I swear, I, want, I once heard a caller call in say that he's to the right of Mark Levin. And Levin said, what are you, a Nazi? <laughs> well, at least he has a sense of humor about it. You know, the thing is, everyone, I've, I've never hung out with Hannity. Everyone who says, who knows him says it's all an act, that he tells him he just plays it up for the cameras. These people believe nothing. Right. Well, you know, but Le Levin, weird as it sounds, he wrote two uh, books about his love of dogs. or his Did he really? Dogs, Pepsi okay. and Coke. Yeah, anyway. Well, that's good. Um, no, At least I'm right glad he has. I'm glad he has humanity for non-humans. Right, but he also wrote a book called uh, "Men in Black" about how the uh, Supreme Court is just 
too politicized. That was like 10 years ago. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, they, they got better, I guess. Right, right. But uh, as far as Trump's concerned, if he becomes a, uh, you know, a convict, he should go to jail. I don't care who he is. I agree. He go to jail. I wouldn't make any. Spe- you want to keep him safe? Put him in solitary. You know? <laughs> yes, uh, yes. Whatever they get. And, you know, under the 13th Amendment, because it's you know it says that uh, uh, which got rid of slavery except except for uh, people s- serving in the military and people yeah. who've con- uh, been convicted of criminal acts. Well, that, I mean, that's prison. how they kept it. The people convicted of criminal acts, is, in other words, they kept slavery going through the prison industrial right. complex. I mean, indentured servitude replaced slavery. Well, they still do it today by not paying him and getting still you know, the drug war. Out. The drug war, yes, the drug, yeah. and we know it. Right. And Nixon's Ehrlichman came out and said it. Nick, it was all about racism. It's not a theory. Can I, right. can I ask? Can I propose a hypothetical? Uh oh, Chris is getting sure. involved now. Okay. Uh-huh. If Donald Trump gets convicted and wins the election mm-hmm. in twenty twenty four, beautiful. Mm-hmm. Which of the two scenarios is more likely to happen? that a prison will be converted into some sort of uh, a White House Oval Office or the White House itself will be fortified and he'll be on house arrest. <laughs> I don't know. It, it, it didn't stop. What's his name from running uh, from jail for president? Uh, um, Eugene Debs? Yeah, Eugene, Eugene Debs. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. But uh, anyway, I don't know. I mean, they didn't think the stuff up. Like I was saying last night, the whole thing is to act presidential, and yes. he never caught on. And that's why he's fucked up, because the other Republican presidents are fucked up as he is. Sorry if my language. But, that's okay. uh, I, I, which Republican but, president anyway, are you saying? Wait, wait, which Republican president are you saying is as fucked up as Donald Trump, just so I understand? Or more. Not, not uh, Dick Cheney. Bushes and Reagan and uh, Nixon and... Uh, okay. Um, and you're those, saying they're... Yeah, I guess they're as fucked up as Trump. I don't know. It's hard to. It's hard. Really hard. Or like, to say. like indeed, what you're but, saying is that they they were just as malicious to America, but they acted presidential. So they knew how. They knew how. They knew not to take their dick out at the bus stop. Unlike Donald Trump, is that right. what you're saying? They had right. better impulse control in public. No, um, no. But you know the the um, talk, someone was talking about uh, Julius and uh, Ethel Rosenberg, who were. Yes. Uh, murdered, executed, yes. you know, and uh, how the, um, Roy Cohn did that whole thing. And neither of them were really guilty of what it was. Uh, Julius was working for the Soviet Union, but he's a recruiter. He had nothing to do with the stealing of plans for the uh, hydrogen that's true. bomb. No, and that's his true. wife, they threatened him, um, Roy Cohn, with killing his wife. If he didn't admit to it so that when he got killed, she would still be yeah. alive and he couldn't right. admit to it. And, and they, so murdered they, them and, they murdered them both. They murdered them both in the electric chair. Right. They were murdered. Right. And they, they left two sons uh, who are written books and stuff who were really, well, you know, Timothy, up, but, uh, there was, uh, Timothy Hutton played uh, the, the lead in the film Daniel about one of their sons back in the 80s. That's how right. I that's how I learned about the Rosenbergs from that movie when I was a kid. Oh, um. Yeah, but also Walter Winchell, you know, he was like the Sean Hannity of his day. You know, Indeed. Indeed. Um, right on, man. But uh, but, an, but anyway, I, I think that uh, um, 
what's his name, uh, Trump, should be treated like <laughs> any other prisoner, and he's felonious Trump. You know, that's felonious what, Trump. Right. I think I yeah. love you, felonious Trump. Yeah. We got it. We have a winner. I think. Thank you. We that is the best way to cap the week off. I think well, I love. Well, thank it. you. I'll be stealing that uh-huh. and using it excessively. Thank you so much. I hope you have a great weekend, Bill. You too. You okay. too. Take care. Thank you. You too. Let's go to Dave in Washington. Hi, Dave. Thanks for waiting on hold. Hey, no problem, John. Look, you know, they've been talking about, um, you know, the various classified documents, and some of them are code word documents, you know. And, and let's say, you know, me and you, we both have a top secret security clearance, but you have access to a certain code word of top secret even if you shared that with me, you would be breaking the law. <laughs> I mean, it's some pretty serious stuff, John. I mean, yeah. but I mean, you, you, you know what I'm saying? And, and I do. the point is, is the damage um, assessment is mind boggling. And I think, you know, um, they had Valerie Plame on and, oh, Will Hurd. And they sounded like brand new CIA agents as they were talking. I mean, they didn't sound like. I mean, it's it's almost like I think they were in sort of a state of shock as an agent would be, not as right. a public person would be. If you if you understand, especially Will Hurt, he's a politician, right? But he was, um, but he was just going back, about, you know. And they were saying, you know, uh, they were just talking about the damage, and yeah, it, it, it's it's unbelievable. Um, you, you know, and also that Tashera, Jack Tashera kid, he, oh, that um, guy. we know. Well, we know what unit he was in. Of course, he's in he's in jail right now. You know, and and they can, you know, he was in a single, you know, Air National Guard or Air Reserve. I forget which. They're in in Massachusetts, but they can they can backtrack her. I mean, Donald Trump was the president of the United States for crying out loud. Right. I mean, do you realize how many people are, are under him? With um, I mean, let's let me put it this way. I don't know if you've noticed this. <laughs> But there's been a lot of um, uh, uh, U.S. like there was a guardrail spy you know, spy airplane intercepted by a Chinese jet the other day. Right. There's been a lot of that in China is building right. a spot a spy facility on. I've heard Cuba. about this. Yes. Okay, and I don't know. I, I don't have the actual numbers, John. I know you hate stuff like this. I don't have the actual numbers. That's okay. I don't yeah. know if those. I don't know if those incidents have gone up. But it sure seems like they have. <laughs> it seems like, uh, you know, China knows our routine pretty good. And yeah. I'm just saying, I'm like, you know, I, I, go ahead. I hear you, man. I, I hear you. No, no, I'm with you. I mean, we're going to have to wait and see on all of this, right? We're going to have to wait and see. It, it's just a, it's, <laughs> it's a big old mess. Uh, but I thank you for giving me perspective I hadn't previously thought of. We got to go. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Thea. This is Sirius XM. I'm John Fugel saying peace.